Welcome to the Fatty Z Muskie Podcast. I'm Andy. Joined on the phone, I have Vance. Hi, Vance. How you doing? Good. We have Todd. Hi, Todd. Hello. I am ready to go. Perfect. We have Jared Sayers. Hi, Jared. Hey, glad to be back. Oh, yeah. It wasn't that long ago we had you on. Nope. Nope. So I'm going to rock it through my plugs. I'd like to get right back to talking to Jared. So this podcast is brought to you by Fat AZ Muskie Products. FatAZMuskie.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Also on YouTube, but not so much the latter of the two. I don't have a lot of baits. I have to admit it. Todd, you saw today what was yeah. in the inventory. Is it, would you say, a lot or a little? It's less than a little. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I apologize. I did not update the website for Raptor Colors. However, there's really not much to update at this point. Um, Todd took most of it, um, and that wasn't a lot. So mm-hmm. I do have tons of rod holders. I'm shipping them almost daily. So if you're looking to set up your boat or change a setup or maybe just tweak it, whatever, reach out to us and we can help you match a setup that's going to fit your style of trolling. Um, We have a lot of videos on the Facebook page. Check those out. Uh, I'm going to say besides that, you can find baits at Muskie Tackle online for standard colors and exclusive colors. Check out Team Rhino Outdoors. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Muddy Creek, how are you? MCFishingGuides.com. Uh, Vance and I are busy up at Chautauqua Lake. Uh, really, we have some stuff open in August, and for the first time, the next two, next six, eight weeks here are pretty filled up. So there's like a day here, a day there. We do get some cancellations, so it all means if you're coming up and you want to try to get out with us, give us a call. Um, Vance, I'm sure we'll do the same, but uh, here once we get rolling. But I've been. Uh, you know, I've been trying to do maybe do after a full day, do a couple half days to get people out. So don't really like doing that all that much, but a couple of days a week, I guess I can handle. So get, get a hold of us. We're having a great beginning of the season. Uh, you know, we, we had a great year last year, but the early season was really slow for us. Uh, this year, that's not the case. We're doing everything's uh, everything's looking good. Lots of muskies. We're getting them cast and we're getting them trolling. So, uh, it's a good start. So get a hold of us if you're looking to go out and try to catch that elusive muskie on Chautauqua Lake. Absolutely. And if you do uh, book up with us, you'll be fishing out of Ranger Boats. Uh, big shout out to them for sponsoring this show. Uh, and big shout out to Vix Marine if you're in the boat market. Um, check out Vix Marine in Kent, Ohio. They sell Starcraft, Star Welds. The Ranger boats, uh, they're great for service and have a plethora of used uh, boats in their inventory. So check them out. Um, also, if you fish with us, you will be fishing with St. Croix Rods. Big shout out to them for sponsoring the show, Muddy Creek. Um, great stuff. I'm really enjoying the trolling rods. I can put a beating on them so far. No blunders. Perfect. That's very nice. Uh, do you want to do tournament announcements or Muskie Zing first? We can do tournament announcements. Uh, coming up here on June 29th here at Chautauqua Lake, there's the Chautauqua Lake Showdown uh, put on by Zach Baker. Um, check out their website for all the details. It's going to be a one-day tournament. It's a Saturday. Uh, it's always a fun time. 
and there's always great giveaways at the end. Also, big shout out to Baker Bates for sponsoring this show and getting fish on Baker's. Not a surprise. Quality product. Check those out. All right. We also have another tournament announcement to <clears throat> let everyone know. The Beast of the East Muskie Fly Fishing Tournament. And give me one second here. All right. Sorry about that, but Todd dropped out. Um, okay. So we got the Beast of the East Fly Fishing Tournament. It's going to be a two-day team event, two or three person, fly fishing only, uh, hence the fly fishing tournament part. It's going to be Friday, October 4th, and Saturday, October 5th. Both largest fish and team prizes are awarded. The awards dinner is going to be Saturday evening. Uh, they have prize raffles that coincides with dinner. This is our chapter's biggest fundraiser for the year. This is... Nittany Valley Muskie Alliance, Muskie's Inc. Chapter 64. That is still several months away. We are going to keep reminding you guys every so often, and then we're going to push a little bit harder as time gets closer. But if you're looking for a challenge, fly fishing for muskies in a tournament setting, this, I think, would be a really good one. So mark your calendars. It's going to be early October. Keep in the back of your mind. All right, Todd, Muskie's Inc., Muskie Zinc, am I? Let's uh, talk a little Muskie Zinc. Muskie Zinc, uh, they've been around for yeah, quite some time now, 50, 50 plus years or something, I believe. And uh, yeah, uh, there's chapters throughout the country. It's pretty much every state that has Muskie as a chapter. Lots of good things getting done by these chapters. They're helping us in local fisheries, buying some minnows. I know our chapter helps us talk to Jared about that a little bit here. They're doing it in Ohio. They're doing it in New York. Uh, your chapter can do only what the members want it to do. You know, you got to get involved. If you become a member, get involved. I think it's really important for our fishery. Have a voice. Muskie Inc. is a good voice uh, for the whole industry. And uh, getting involved in your chapters can help to uh, get things done to help the fishery. Lots of neat things, tournaments. You know, most of the chapters are tournaments. You get access to the lungs log. Just, uh, Really important to get involved in your local musking chapter if you're into musky fishing. Excellent. I like it. All right. I think we're through this. I'm hoping that our audio holds together. So, Jared, are you with us still? I'm still here. Okay, perfect. Very patiently waiting. All right. Let's real quickly, Jared, for people who don't know you, I think everyone does. It was probably our most praised podcast that we've had. Uh, was the last time that you were on. So we got some really big shoes to fill. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, you know, that was, that was interesting. It's, it's very neat. We had people from Europe commenting on just how interesting the show was. So, um, yeah, it was, I'm still getting comments from it. I had a guy call last week said, Hey, I was just driving up the road and I was listening to your podcast like the seventh time I listened to it, and I had a couple questions. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's uh, it's yeah. good stuff, and I don't know if we're going to be able to match it because all of that stuff was just eye opening for a lot of the listeners, and including myself. But we're going to do some Q and A, and what we're going to kind of do with this is, if anyone out there is listening, has like a question for Jared um, that they want us to ask, we'll pro- more than likely have him on again. 
you know, here in, you know, the next coming months or later this year or something, we can start writing that stuff down and we can, we can just ask from someone that's on the inside. But, uh, I'm going to stop talking, but Jared, give a, give a brief overview of your position again and, and what you do and how long you've been doing it. Okay. Yeah. Um, like you said, my name is Jared Sayers. I'm the manager of the Lionsville State Fish Hatchery. Uh, the Lionsville State Fish Hatchery is the only hatchery in Pennsylvania that is raising purebred muskies as of this year. Um, I've been with the Fish and Boat Commission since 2005, and uh, I came from day one. I was I was on the ground floor of learning how to convert these muskies on the dry food, and kind of my whole career has been focused on how to raise muskies more efficiently and then how to grow them bigger for fall and now how to grow 12 to 14 inch yearlings for early summer stockings and that's just how the how it's progressed over the last dozen years and uh it's it's been an adventure and i've learned a lot along the way and i I really enjoy interacting with the anglers now and kind of getting feedback on what you guys are seeing and people People seem pretty happy right now. I think we're getting a lot of good results with these bigger fish we've been stocking the last five or six years. So I think we're heading in the right direction, and I hope we can keep doing that. Perfect. Now I'm going to kind of kick this thing off real quick. I don't know. I, I don't know everyone that you talk to or friends on Facebook, but I've noticed since our our last podcast that when um, stuff starts to kind of get a disagreement on things or needs clarification. I'm noticing some people who are friends with me tagging you in various, uh, Facebook, you know, whatever discussions I'm going to say, has that always been that way or has it increased or decreased since? That that pretty much started with the last podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really cool because, you know, I'd like to think that, everyone out there is a good person and sometimes they're just a little bit their, their mind isn't on the right track and there's, there's nothing wrong with, with that. And it's, it's neat that people are getting behind because I, I, I kind of view you as the state and, right. and you know, you can have your opinions about local government and all that stuff like that. But regardless, there's really no hidden motive for you. This, this is, this is your job. It's not like a for profit kind of thing. You know, if you can save a nickel here, you're going to, you're going to do it and put substandard fish out there. So <laughs> right, I, I think that that's very cool. So yeah, was, and it, it's kind of nice too, because I, I've seen the kind of the same things you do. And I, I like to take the same kind of approach is that there's been oftentimes where I'd get in a discussion on Facebook and just one person really just wanted to kind of argue about it, you know, so we would take it to a private messenger and just through education and explaining things more and um, kind of dis- disproving and expelling some of those old notions and old wives' tales and things that just people assume, you know, just through people understanding the process better, by the end of the conversation, we're you know, we're friendly about it, you know, and they're, they say, okay, I, I just didn't understand. Thank you so much for telling me, you know? So I think we can, the more hearts and minds we can change that way, the better it's going to be for the sport. There needs to be more of that in the sport. Right. Good discussion, not just, you know. Not just awful, often. awful memes that just throw gas on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, Todd, you... So, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, first off, you 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 guys are have to be under uh, a busy time right now because the ones for from last season have not been stocked yet. Correct. Correct. Yeah. We, so we'll, how, we'll be, uh, we're yeah, going to start stocking now. Yeah. Go ahead. Well. <laughs> if anyone's been watching my Facebook post, I've been kind of teasing that a little bit. How you hand broadcasted all those pellets and then yeah. those fish just blew up. <laughs> the fish are looking really, really good. They're a little, the average size right now is a little bit bigger than they were last year. And they still got about two weeks to grow, which should be another inch before we actually start stalking. An inch. So I've been trying to, I've been kind of holding off on showing the, the real close up pictures and showing the size of them until they reach their max potential. But uh, you, you can bet I'll be showing that here in a couple of weeks yeah. when we start stocking. But I think everybody's going to be really happy with them. Okay, so why? They're really fat. They, they're put on a lot of weight. Um, they're definitely in that 12 to 14-inch size range. And I've been seeing a lot more 15 and 16-inchers this year than we did last year. Now, why do you why do you feel that, that the average is above that, than last year? Oh, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I think I don't think we're even close to reaching our potential yet because the the last couple of springs have been so late, you know, we keep getting on these late spawns. Um, and this year we're right on the same ballpark. You know, we've been spawning that third week of April. Um, and in the past we were getting into early eggs in the, the end of March, first week of April. So that losing three weeks of growth at the beginning causes us an inch and a half at the end, you know, because once we get these fish up and feeding in warm water, they're gaining about half an inch a week. And uh, we just can't get to that those early eggs anymore if we get a nice warm spring we could get even more growth on these guys but the biggest thing is when the eggs are taken so that's because that dictates how much time we have to grow them um and then from there it's kind of a little bit based on water temperature you know we heat our water during the early processes when we're converting the fish on the dry food and until we get them up to like three or four inches then we move them out to the outside raceway so they have room to grow around the fourth of july which coincidentally lines up nicely with when we're finishing up stocking the previous year's yearlings. So we get the yearlings stocked, we clean those raceways out, disinfect them, make sure there's no diseases or pathogens left over from the year before. Then we'll move those guys out there when they're about four inches, give them lots of room to grow. But once they're out there, then it's kind of, well, um, we'll keep them on the warmest water we possibly can out there, but that's kind of dictated by mother nature at that point. We're running, pond water over them and it's the more the warmer we can get the ponds the warmer the faster the fish will grow so if we can grow them in 78 80 degree water they'll grow even faster um but if we get a, a cool summer or an early fall things like that it slows the growth down so it's kind of dictated by that a little bit um the more so minnows you- we can the more minnows we can get, the more food we can pound into them definitely helps. So we could, we focus on those things, but if the water doesn't stay up into the high sixties at, at the least into the fall for a while, that really cuts down on growth too. So, so having said that, like hypothetically, are you say all these variables happen? Um, are you still going to stock the fish or are you going to wait until they hit that? 12 to 14 inches yep. regardless right. is what you're we saying. Will all, we'll always wait for the 12 to 14 inches. Okay. But this year we're not worried about it because they're already there. So we're good. Very so good. I, I saw a video of the, you, you sent out from uh, the Warren Muskie Inc. chapter had, you know, 
given some money, donated some money to purchase some minnows. I saw you posted some videos of all the minnows swimming in there. Uh, when you put them, when when they're this size, are out in the pond. Are you just like dumping a bunch of fatheads in there and just saying have at it, or do you have to like rafting them? No, we pretty much let them have at it. Um, okay. It's a little bit of both. Um, we yeah. put them in there because we want. If we ration them, the, the fear is that the bigger, more aggressive ones are going to get a bigger share of the minnows. Yeah. So if we put more of them at a, in at one time, there's a better chance of all the fish getting some of that weight gain. You know. Um, that being said, as you saw in that video, a lot of the minnows will crowd up towards the front. They want to be in that fresh flow, and they're trying to kind of ball up because they're, they're afraid of those big toothy critters that are trying to eat them. Yeah. Well, so it's a death day, sentence. You know, there's no getting out. <laughs> Yes, those poor those poor minnows aren't going to make out well. Yeah, we're dealing with flesh. We're dealing with flesh eating fish here with right. razor sharp teeth. Uh, with razor sharp teeth, I don't know. That being said, when the minnows pile up up there, the muskies are spread out through a hundred foot long raceway, and the minnows are kind of all balled up in the top twelve feet of that raceway. So every day when our our hot house guy goes out there and he fills up the feeders and stuff with the dry food pellets, he'll take a couple of netfuls out of that big ball up top, walk them down to the bottom of the raceway and put them in. And then as those minnows swim back towards the top, they get picked off. And that kind of yeah. lets everybody get another chance at them. And we'll do that every day until the minnows are gone. And Plus simultaneously, really a thousand <laughs> screams happen. <laughs> simultaneously. Don't put me down there. I mean, from the... From the aspect of the minnows, that's that's a horrible, horrible thing. <laughs> that's so circle of life. What what is you know if if I know you guys haven't had this yet. If you had absolute perfect conditions, an early warm spring, the perfect summer weather leading into the perfect fall, everything perfect. Where do you think your average fish will be? If everything was just exactly perfect when you spawned, if everything them. was exactly perfect, I think we'd average like in that fourteen to fifteen inch range. Okay, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but that and that's pretty much mirrors what happens in nature. So, okay, you know, um, back in the old days when we were feeding um, cheaper food and we didn't have our techniques down and stuff, you know, I'd, we'd go out and we'd find a, a natural reproduction fish once in a great blue moon. And we were shocked at how much bigger they were, you know, because they were reaching that 15 inch, 15, 16 inch range by the end of fall. Um, and we were struggling. We were just trying different things, trying to get them to 10 inches by fall back then, you know. So as they come out of winter in that 15 inch range, so, you know, a natural fish is probably 16, 17 inches right now. And I think we could get them to 14, 15 inches. So, th- so that's interesting, hole, you know, with 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 man at the wheel versus nature, you guys are still somewhere around ideally 80% of what mother nature could, could do on her own if she could do it. Yep. That's pretty close. And that's, it's pretty much, we see that with a lot of different fish species. Um, I think channel catfish is the only thing we do better than nature at. And I'm not, I don't know why that is i think we control the temperatures a little better than mother nature does but when biologists go out and they sample the channel catfish in the fall um, our fingerlings are usually a little bit bigger than the natural ones but um, other than that our um, hatchery fish are usually a tiny bit behind 
Now, do you think that does does that have any long term repercussions? Like, okay, so these fish were a little, you know, behind the norm later on in life, or do you think they just kind of catch back up, or there really is no yeah. benchmark? Absolutely, I don't think there's. Um, you know, it goes back. First of all, um, I think if any natural reproduction fish that do happen to be out there, I think it will give them an advantage. So that's a good thing, you know, because we want, we'll take all the help we can get growing the sport and creating success for the anglers. So um, if the, the natural fish are a little bit ahead, we want those genes reproducing whatever fish figured out how to make that happen. We want those ones to be successful. So they will have a little bit of advantage. Um, but for the most part, you know, there's going to be so many stocked fish out there and there's going to be so many stocked fish that are the majority of the fish moving up through the food chain. They, that becomes the norm, you know what I mean? So just because the, the natural fish would be an inch bigger doesn't mean that the ones that are an inch smaller are at any disadvantage because that's what they all are, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's neat. Like last podcast we talked about, like Todd brought up um, that just about any man-made lake is anything put in there is an invasive species. Like it wasn't there prior. If it was a field and they flooded it, that's kind of like the muskies right now is like, how do you feel like these, these lakes around here would fare the natural ones? I mean, right now there's a lot of fish in there because we're putting fish in there. I'm going to buy fish. I mean, muskies. How do you think that those would, would be if there was just, if you guys just stopped stocking for 15 years? Yeah, I I don't think they, it's not like they would go extinct, but there would certainly wouldn't be a very good fishable population. You know, the the lakes that do not have any large tributaries, they probably would become extrapolated. You know, there wouldn't be any left. Um, But things that have, you know, French Creek or something like that as a tributary or, um, Things that have, you know, it's got to be a substantial, slow-moving water, you know, deep enough that the fish can get up there and spawn, lay their eggs, and have enough flowing water that that keeps them cleaned off and they don't get smothered. Um, those would, they, they would have some very, very limited natural reproduction, just enough to keep the species going, um, yeah. which is probably how it's supposed to be in nature. You know, they're not mother i don't think mother nature set lakes up to have high populations of apex predators but um to to support a fishing population you know for anglers to enjoy and go be able to go to a lake and expect to have an experience with a fish um that's what we're shooting for yeah this lends well to a question todd wanted to ask todd you know which one yeah yeah this has been talked about you know uh we've seen the discussions you know there's some fisheries out in Minnesota where the, you know, the fish biologists, the fish uh, people that do the netting have said, uh, okay, that's enough. We're, we're going to take this off the list. We have, we have enough muskies in here. And unless people start harvesting them, you know, we're, we're just going to quit stocking because it, we only want to support so many. Now that might be certain baits that are feeling that way, but you know, what, what's your feeling? I mean, can there be, too many. What are the consequences? Uh, I know yeah. when they filmed Tamarack Lake, you know, that it, the muskies took off like crazy. They drained the lake and they, they, they re in, you know, they redid everything for about 10 years and then we had to drain the lake again. But throughout those 10 years, that, that 10 year period, I mean, the muskie fishery was uh, incredible. 
I don't think, I, and I don't know that, uh, you know, the rest of the fish ever really caught up to that. Yeah, uh, right. We're talking about a lot of really skinny muskies and things like that, but, uh, yeah. Okay. You touched on a few different things there. So, yeah. Yeah. so when you hear, um, like Wisconsin, Minnesota and Michigan to a little smaller degree, when you hear them talk about, um, getting a musky population established and then backing off, a lot of times those lakes out there, they have a, a more significant portion of natural reproduction. Okay. Um, the waters aren't as fertile up north. Like if you go up to Canada and you, you, you hear about all these like crystal clear waters with you can catch northern pikes every every cast. Yeah. Um, it's because there's the water, there's not farmland around it that's running nutrients into it. Um, there's not a lot of natural um, over over pollution of um, nitrogen and phosphorus in the water, which causes algae blooms and single cell algae blooms, which make the water look darker like Pennsylvania water does. Mm-hmm. So those lakes they're talking about when they say that, I'm assuming, um, mm. they're if you went up there and fished them, I bet they're they look pristine. You know, there's the water looks beautiful and blue, and you can see the bottom in 25 feet, and there's nice weed beds. You know, it's a it's a nice lake. Um, and they get natural reproduction because they don't have the dense phytoplankton in the water that makes our waters look brown in Pennsylvania. It's just because they're yeah. so fertile. We have very, very fertile water, which is the problem with the Chesapeake Bay. As that water flows down further, you get that fertility and too much into the Chesapeake Bay. And that's where they have problems with oxygen levels and pH levels being too high because of all the nutrients running in there. <coughs> so all the, the, the long and short of it is their, their water is not being fertile and not hanging that. And phytoplankton bloom means their eggs survive. The, the, the muskies do not have to run up into a tributary to find moving water to find that to have success with natural reproduction. They can lay their eggs on the shorelines of the lake, and there's nothing settling out and smothering those eggs. So they have yeah. a lot better natural reproduction. Um, and then it's not fantastic still. It's nothing like um, they're not hatching, you know, 80% of their eggs or anything like that. Yeah. It's just that yeah. they're hatching more of those eggs are living to adulthood than the adults that are dying off. You know what I mean? So like mm-hmm. it, the population maintains itself in Pennsylvania. We would never see that happen because the waters are so fertile. The eggs all get smothered unless they find moving water. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that you asked about was what's about the population getting too high. And in Pennsylvania, we have his, a long history of red spot. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of different lakes that, Muskie populations have been high in before red spot disease has been documented in most of them. Yeah. So that's the concern in Pennsylvania. We don't, if we were to decide, okay, let's make, you know, Lake Arthur the best muskie fishing lake in the world and just keep stocking it with super high density until everybody's catching fish as soon as they put their lures in the water. You know, we could try and do that, but the population would definitely get stressed because they wouldn't have enough food to feed everybody. And as soon as they felt that stress, they'd become vulnerable to disease, and then a disease like red spot would thin the population out. Okay, I have, I have a question about red spot, and this mm-hmm. pertains to something we talked about earlier today. Um, I was on a charter, and I saw a relatively uh, green fish uh, floating. And I drove up to it, you know, just to see what was going on. Um, you know, Todd has that epic story of like, you know, pulling a bath 
bass through a gullet and both fish swam off. I thought that this, you know, was my chance to have something cool like that happen, but it wasn't. Um, but here's this freshly dead muskie. So the first thing I do is, uh, I grab it and I, you know, uh, get right under the gill plate and I, I look at the thing and I'm like, hmm, this thing, you know, there's, there's no indication that this fish had been caught and there was foul play. Um, so I look down on the other side of, of the fish and I start seeing, um, kind of, I would call it, uh, like almost like a, a dark yellow pus filled sacks, uh, that are, are kind of decaying and underneath that is red flesh. Now, is that red spots or is this a different type of bacterial infection? It doesn't sound like red spot, um, but it could be. You know, it, they what you're describing is probably a col- a bacteria called columnaris. Um, columnaris is very popular. It's very prevalent in Pennsylvania waters. Um, anytime a fish is stressed, usually during spawning time, we see a lot of lakes get have uh, crappy die-offs because of columnaris. They just start spawning. They get in the shallow water. The water warms up really quickly. They're already stressed. They get columnaris infections, and we have we start getting phone calls of people finding a couple hundred dead floating crappies, and they have these red, pussy, yellowish sores on them. And um, usually, it's always columnaris. I do see um, usually when you see a muskie that has uh, some damage to a tail or a fin, you'll see a similar kind of yellow, slimy stuff on it. Usually, that's columnaris. Um, it's just one of those opportunistic bacteria that's everywhere. The fish immune system fights it off most of the time unless they have an injury or whether unless they're stressed. So that particular fish um, sounds like he it could have gone through a, a very stressful spawn. Maybe it had some bite marks, you know, and those things got infected. And the, the once the columnaris the columnaris infection starts outside the fish. There's an external infection. Um, and then if it sticks around long enough and festers long enough, it'll become an internal um, in, infection in the fish. And then once it starts affecting the organs and the liver and the, and the kidney, then the fish will eventually die from it. So that sounds like that's what it was. Um, if it was red spot, um, you generally wouldn't see those the yellowish fuzzy stuff around the sores. Usually they're much cleaner edged. Um, uh, and they're, they're usually... Um, I don't know. They don't look like a wound. They look like they look like an ex- exaggerated lamprey wound. Mm-hmm. Um, but and that's not to say, you know, definitively that sometimes when the fish has red spot, the columnaris will also attack to that wound once in a while too. So it, it it's difficult to say for sure. Yeah. Um, in every circumstance, but in general, that's kind of the the way that works. Well, Todd and I were talking, and uh, you know, we noticed that some of the fish that we're catching look extremely beat up um from the spawn um this season like it was just it looked like it was you know those fish had a rough rough time and they're just coming off of it now because the water temperatures are they're low here uh just behind from what they were last year what were they last year todd oh geez i mean opening weekend remember it got real warm they're up in the high 70s in the general yeah and of course we've seen more than 65 yeah. 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 So, I mean, 
they're just coming off. You can tell when we're catching these big females, their guts are just like there. You could just tell that they were distended at one point and it's just like, there's nothing there now. Yeah. It's kind of flabby. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. flabby. <laughs> saggy skin. Yeah. Yeah. Sa- saggy stuff. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just interesting seeing that fish today. It was just completely healthy on one side. I flipped it over and it kind of did look like exaggerated lamprey, uh, perfect circles uh, on this but yeah, it's um, possible i mean red spot has been documented in several areas throughout pennsylvania so it's not uncommon but um generally it, it only shows up in high density populations you know and, right yeah and time tuning it we see it here and there but nothing like it used to be mm-hmm. um edinburgh it's been way better than it used to be you know so that's the concern with the high populations is bringing something like that back. You know, you can only, you can only tip the teeter totter so far in one direction and mother nature will say, Nope, I'm bringing it back to where I want it to be. Yeah. Their nature takes care. Yeah. I, have, I have some good photos of it, uh, of that, of that wound on that fish. So maybe we'll shoot it over to you and you can yeah, take your best look at it. But, uh, I certainly am not concerned about the red spot up here, uh, but uh, you know that was just sad to yeah, see. It, I guess it, in a way, right? You know, it was it was a big you know it was a big fish. It was around forty four inches. It was all fat uh, and freshly dead. I was just like, man, eyes were beautiful. You know, just crazy. I, I got I I have like three directions I want to go right now, but I'll ask I'll ask one of them. I can only ask one at a time, I guess, because it's human. Um, when, when they get that infection, is that something the fish can fight off, like once the infection sets in, or is it just a death sentence if it gets internal? I'm not sure. Um, usually in hatchery fish, because we do see culinaris infections in, inside the hatchery. In the hatchery, once it gets inside, we have to treat them with an antibiotic or it's a death sentence. Um, on a larger adult fish with a stronger immune system, I don't know. I bet it probably goes both ways. You know, it kind of depends on what what the water temperatures are. You know, if the, what the oxygen levels are, what the food base is, how hard they're having to work for food. You know, I think all those things probably factor into it. If if everything else is ideal and the water's not too warm and they have plenty to eat, they probably can come back from it. You know, it's like a, a person having the flu back in the 1800s. You know, like mm-hmm. if you had no stress in your life and you could just relax and get better. You probably did. But if you know, you were, plowing you didn't have fields. the money or something, you had to be out plowing your field or you're going to starve to death. Anyhow, you probably got pneumonia and died, you know, kind of same thing. It kind of depends on their stress level and their environmental factors. Okay. All right. So I'm going to then swing this over to question number two. There is a small Creek in Pennsylvania that, used to be stocked with tigers, now is stocked with peers. I don't even know if it's stocked anymore. But it's it, it flows to Lake Erie. I'm not going to really blow it up too much further than that. And I used to fish it a lot. And I got a lot of landowner permissions. Very small, very, very small creek. And because this flow to Lake Erie, the landowners would say that the Fish Commission using it as like some big brother, you know, overruling hand, would come in and put lamprey killer in it. 
to kill, I guess the lampreys would go upstream or something. I don't, I don't fully understand that, but, um, and they would say once the, this lamprey killer was put in the water, they would see several dead muskies throughout spring. Like this stuff was killing these muskies. I know you're not a biologist so much on this, but, um, (laughs) Do you know anything about that? I'm 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 only asking you this, and it, it came to my mind because of this this infection, uh, was because you're you're part of the state, and I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah. Um, so first of all, um, the state and Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission don't have anything to do with the lampreys. Um, that's the all the it's handled by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's the it's federally funded. Okay. Um, they do poison all of the creek, all of the Lake Erie tributaries on a rotating basis for lampreys. Um, so the lampreys' life cycle is they um, they run they run like a salmon. They can they come in from the lake, they run up the streams, they get pretty far up. Um, like I don't know how familiar you are with Conneaut Creek over you know it falls all the way over to Ohio. Um, that has a lot of them, you know, they get all the way up down into the Springboro area where the bottom's kind of sandy and gravelly and mucky. Mm -hmm. Um, and they lay their eggs in there and then they go back out to the lake and, uh, the juveniles actually grow down in the, the substrate of the, of the, um, stream along with the non-invasive lampreys too. We have, we have some good lampreys, rainbow lampreys, lampreys and stuff that are supposed to be there. Um, and our biologists do go out and survey for those once in a while, usually working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They can take backpack electroshockers, walk into knee-deep water, and they stick those things down in the mud, you know, two electric poles. They hit the button. It runs in an electric current between the two poles. And these little, you know, they're like three inches long at that point. They're little, little snakes come sticking their heads up out of the mud trying to get away from the from the electric current then they they gather them up and identify the species and do population estimates and stuff that way which is pretty cool it's kind of scary <laughs> almost if if you like to go barefoot in these creeks and stuff like that it's it's like a super leech <laughs> yeah and there's a lot of them i don't think they're it's not, they didn't have to look very hard to find them okay so then so the u.s fish and wildlife service has a system um, I'm not sure about the rotation. I want to say it's like every three to four years they get to each tributary, um, and they go they go way upstream. They have a they they calculate their dosage so that it will not harm the fish, um, and they put it in. And it's actually it, it puts a large green swath through the water, so the neighboring landowners often do know when it went in there because um, they'll see the the greenness come down through the stream. Mm-hmm. It's like a, almost like a neon green, you know, it's very, very unnatural looking. Okay. <laughs> Don't drink the water then. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's very effective on the lampreys and it's usually very safe. The problem is sometimes those, the calculation bait to get the pH and everything right with that, with that dosage is very critical. And it, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here because now I'm that much. I know <laughs> what I do. And I also know there's something very sensitive with the pH. And like, if it rains unexpectedly harder or more than they expected it to that next day, it changes the pH drastically on that treatment. And sometimes there'll be an associated fish kill with it. Okay. So it's not completely improbable that it can affect 
other fish right. other than lampreys. Right. But they, they try to be as careful as they can. I don't know a lot about the success rate on that, um, but I know I've I've heard of, and we've documented that there has been fish kills associated with the lamprey poisoning. And it, it, when do they normally do this treatment? I know that that's not your area, but in the spring? Um, it's, let me think. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's late spring because last time that I remember there being a fish kill, there was a few stocked trout that were also killed with it, but there wasn't, if I remember correctly, there was very many stock trout left. So it was so, like towards the towards the end of when the stock trout would be petering out or would have been all fished out of the water kind of thing. Okay, so it's it's not unreasonable Late to spring, say that, right? that the, 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 the muskies would be coming off of the spawn or attempting to spawn. And like what, like what we were talking about with Vance's fish that he found is that they're compromised already. They're right. beat up. They might have some bacteria or something going on. So it might not be the only cause, but it does add more to the proverbial Absolutely. It could add more. It could add more stress. I don't think it's, I hope it's not something that would happen very often, but if you're, if a landowner tells you they witnessed it, I, I wouldn't have any reason to doubt them. Yeah. And it's more than one landowner. Right. <laughs> but you know, it, you know, I guess it is what it is. I can't stop it. And it's been years since I went back there just, for time constraints, but that's that's very interesting. Um, okay, can I? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, okay, since we're on uh, the topic of poisoning streams and stress levels on fish and things of that nature, um, Chautauqua was sprayed with that herbicide stuff uh, this year a little bit more, well, a lot of bit more than it was last year. With I know that you this isn't isn't your your State. field, but yeah. Um with the places that are sprayed in PA with that herbicide, mm-hmm. do you believe it stresses out the fish? It's unhealthy for the fish uh population, and could you see it uh possibly, hypothetically, maybe killing that muskie and i'm just playing the side of a, a listener here i have my own opinion on it but this is yeah. people know that chautauqua was sprayed they would like to hear from somebody that has a background in this uh right what do you think about that spray and fish i'm i'm fairly certain that it has absolutely zero effect on the fish directly you know um i know changing the weed beds and stuff like that you know that gets in a whole nother realm, you know, pushes them out of their normal habitat. Does that have a stress factor on them? I'm not sure, you know, maybe, but the chemical they're using to spray the hydrilla and keep the hydrilla po- pushed back is the exact same chemical that I treat my fish with when they have a bacterial infection on their gills. And it's, we commonly use it because it's very easy on the fish. It's the most gentle treatment that we do on the fish. There's there's other treatments and chemicals that we use on the fish to treat them that we have to be careful of the dosage and we have to, and we see associated mortality with it. And we hopefully cure more fish than we hurt. You know, we try not, we try to keep our treatments to a minimum so that we don't have to worry about that. But the, the particular chemical that you're talking about is so unharmful to them 
that I give them baths in it just to get them healthy. <laughs> it's actually medicine. Yeah, it actually works really, really well on keeping fish bacterial infections out of fish. Okay, well, that's very that's that's so they're using that stuff to kill off weeds. Yep, and that's very interesting. Well, diquat dibromide. Yes. See, and that, and you put that on fish to help them with bacterial infections. Absolutely. Okay, so there's. If we didn't use it, we wouldn't be able to raise muskies. <laughs> it's, a, a, it's a key component. That's like that's, a that's, flip 180 that, right now. That's a that's a 180 <laughs> yeah. flip. It really is. Now that's interesting because my next question was going to be like, okay, say I just dump this thing on a fish, what happens to it? You know, it right. gets stronger and, and bigger. Saying, it gets it gets stronger, yeah. Um, but on on the flip side, you're you they it is killing habitat. It is killing uh, areas right. where where these things are going around. And you already touched base on that. Right. Um, Obviously, you know, I, you know, when they're spraying for hydrilla, if they don't keep the hydrilla under control, it will dominate the lake, and it, it's it's going to drastically affect fish populations. So. You know, I've seen detrimental effects from because there's no way they can spray something that'll only infect the invasive weeds and leave the good weeds. You know, mm-hmm. so obviously sometimes they wipe out a whole good weed bed that was somebody's favorite fishing spot for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that nobody wants that to happen, but the the alternative is to let the hydrilla grow, and it will just choke out the water, and nothing can penetrate it except super tiny little bait fish. Uh, eventually your your fishery will be ruined. So um, we do have hydrilla taking over and pine tuning in some areas and they're spraying very aggressively, um, especially north of the causeway. They're trying to, south of the causeway, it's, they're trying to just, you know, keep it under control, but it's just shown up north of the causeway. So they're going to spray pretty aggressively this year to try to eliminate it on the north end in those few spots where they found it. Now, I want to I want to jump in real quick on this. So, your take on this spraying of these weeds is actually a positive note. You're viewing this as something good, and it's yeah. It, it, well, it, it's it's a necessary evil, I guess, is what I would say. I mean, I I prefer to have nice thick weed beds all over the place, but I I've seen the devastation that can happen from not controlling these invasive weeds, and it's worse. So. Give, if you have to pick one or the other, um, I support the spraying of the invasive weeds because it's in the long run, it's going to provide for better fishing. So it's it's like, okay, I, I have something broken on my body. I have to get either I can live with it and it's just going to get worse or do the operation, get it fixed. It's going to suck for however long it takes to heal. Then it's going to be back to business for a while. Exactly. Okay. And he's hernia. <laughs> okay, I guess yeah. If we want to want to go that way, yeah, um, which is a great example now that I actually think about it. But um, so when you see, because like I'm I'm getting a whole different perspective here, and I, I don't think that it's a bad thing for adults to have you know good discussions and change their opinion on this stuff. And you know we've kind of talked about it with like almost a negative that this was happening without really any any good any good other side to this. Right. And, and it's. And I see the negatives. I mean, the, the negatives are easy to grab hold of. And, you know, I know 
Lake Arthur got sprayed pretty heavy there for a long time, and the, the local muskie anglers were pretty upset about it. And I get it. You know, I'm not telling them they shouldn't have been upset. Like, I, I get why they were upset. It's just there's no there's no good answer that's an alternative. You know, if if it wasn't for that negative thing happening, the future would have been much worse. So when you see, you know, and I, I'm just going to group people here as as like anglers and homeowners. When you see anglers resisting this spraying, but the homeowners wanting it for their own recreation and view and, you know, personal reasons. I mean, obviously both sides have personal reasons. Are you looking at the anglers as you guys maybe don't know the whole story and, and the benefits and, and long-term effects? Like perhaps, you know, there's not really good information explaining this or like, how, how do you view that? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think it's, honestly, I don't give it too much thought because in our, usually in Pennsylvania, it's just that in my areas, it's the state parks that are doing the spraying. It's not the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. Um, so it, it's, it's not the, it's not, it, it's a completely different. Parks are different than. Yep. It's DC and R. Okay. That's doing the spraying. Um and but we have like we have a group meeting with DCNR and Ohio people come out Ohio biologists and everybody comes over just to meet on Pima tuning every year. So I know I get to hear a lot of these discussions within that you know that small circle and they're deciding how much they're going to spray and where they're going to spray at and how much money it's going to cost to do the spraying. Um, and I, I I know from being in the room that they have these same kind of conversations. They understand the concerns of the anglers. They know you know there's a downside here's this patch of hydrilla we've identified over here on the north end of Pima tuning. If we go over there and spray that, it's going to ruin the weed beds for the bass fishermen. Do we really want to do that? Is it necessary to talk about it for an hour and come to the conclusion? Yeah. If we don't do it in five years, that weed bed's going to be gone because it's going to be choked out by hydrilla anyhow. So let's go ahead and just try to eliminate it now. It'll suck for a couple of years and then hopefully the good weeds will be back. Hmm. Okay. So it's the DCNR. We'll just put that out there so nobody send Jared a bunch of messages. Uh, in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. About weed spraying, yes. Yeah, and it is what it is. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to make a judgment one way or the other. I'm just saying it's it's kind of a necessary evil that we have to live with because the alternative isn't good either. Yeah. How long, what, how long does it work? So if they go in and spray, it, and it kills the the weeds that are existing right now is there potentially weeds going to start growing like later in the spring in that area or is that going to just be wiped out for the season for two seasons um, for three seasons it what i've noticed is it usually takes a couple years for um, something to start growing again yep mm-hmm. and then it you know then Sometimes it gets exacerbated because those open areas tend to draw in any local carp populations for spawning. And when the carp get in there and tear everything up with their rolling around and stir everything up, then light can't penetrate very good. So Mm -hmm. it takes, it kind of, it tends to get exacerbated by other factors and it takes a couple of years to come back around. Mm -hmm. But Hmm. those invasive plants are definitely not something we want to take over the lakes of Pennsylvania because, these will be much more enjoyable conversations in the future if they do. Yeah. 
Well, it seems like on Chautauqua, they're a bit late to the party on it uh, because there is a weed that milfoil uh, that has taken over, which is pretty much the dominant weed in the lake right now. Right. And it's been for for uh, a while. Um, but I can honestly say with the spraying that's happened, it's really not affect, affected the bite. Um, and it really hasn't affected our... Uh, you know, weed lines we like to uh, cast on. I mean, do you agree with that, Todd? Oh, yeah, because, you know, they didn't go out into that deeper stuff. You know, it seems like they sprayed into that thick weed that we really don't fish because it's really unfishable anyhow, <laughs> you know, even by this time of year. Uh, the the milfoil, geez, I mean, even a lot of the lakes I went to in Canada, how those lakes have changed. Uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, you know, areas, big bays that I used to fish are just unfishable now. I mean, I don't know, is milfoil even still considered an invasive species in, yeah. in most lakes? I mean, that's what it is. That's what we've got. Uh, yeah, hydro, you know. milfoil is definitely still considered an invasive species, but like you said, it's it's getting so prolific, it's, it's almost just everywhere. Um, yeah. And now they're mostly the concern is making sure hydrilla doesn't become the same thing because hydrilla chokes even more tightly than milfoil. Does. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and the fish love milfoil. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> nice long and, you know, all the fish just keep a little one swimming around in there. And, right. and uh, the, the hydrilla does not get real tall, right? It's just like a matting on the bottom. Um, it will actually get tall. Um, in Pennsylvania, it generally doesn't because we're kind of at one of its northern ranges. Okay. Um, so by the time it starts growing, it gets to about the top um, right as it, the water starts cooling down and it kind of dies off for the year. Okay. If we had a longer growing season, it would it would grow to the top and then start growing across the top. That's why the bass fishermen like it down in the south. It's a different story, Don. If you go to Georgia they'll go to hydrilla patches to fish for bass because it has a longer growing season. It gets to the top and then it starts growing along the top and they'll have those big, if you, you know, you watch Bill dance on TV fishing Lake Okeechobee, he's tossing frogs out in these big mats of just grass on top of the water and then bass come up and yeah, hammer right yeah. through it. That's hydrilla. And they love it down there because the bass all live underneath it and they fish topwaters on top of it. But yeah. they're not dealing with the stocks. They're fishing the stuff that grew across the top. And there's a, a 20 foot shelf that all the fish are underneath and the weeds are just on top. Uh, okay. So in Pennsylvania, it never reaches that level. Hmm. You guys good on weeds? Because I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm good I, on I, weeds. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm, I, I'm good on weeds. I mean, that's. Uh... I'm just happy I'm being able to answer all these questions that are outside my realm of expertise here. No, I mean, but it, 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 <laughs> you're just you're just getting lucky and asking good questions that I knew something about. <laughs> and having an I don't know or I have no opinion answer is perfectly all right. I mean, uh, you know, like, are you are you worried? I don't want to say worried, but have you put any thought into if you make muskies, you know, these stocked muskies so successful that like what kind of Todd was hitting on, you're not really going to have the need to stock these fish anymore. If you get the population so dense that you're like, we got to pull way back. And now instead of stocking 35,000 fish a year, 
you guys are shooting like 10,000 and you're stocking once every three or four years. Is is there like a long-term thing you, you're looking at and, and maybe some stumbling blocks of being too successful? Um, no, I don't think so. I think, um, I, I would, th- I would jump for joy if that happened, you know, like if we ever reached a level where every lake in Pennsylvania had such a good musky population that in Fisherman Magazine never left our state because they were just here doing one show after another. And mm-hmm. every musky tournament in the country was coming here. Cause it's the only, it's the best country musky fishing in the country. I'd be happy. <laughs> right, I mean, that'd be a huge success. And, and the, and the, and the, the key is that first of all, that's not very likely. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be happy if we can reach that level on a few lakes throughout the state, you know, get those to be some destination waters and start pulling people in, start driving license sales, start driving musky tournaments, start pulling people from other states and getting some notoriety for our state. Um, that would be a, the first stepping stone. Um, and then as, and those populations are never going to maintain themselves. Obviously they're a nice long lived fish. So if we can get a good two or four, two to four to maybe five good year classes in a lake. So there's some size variance and stuff. It'll be good for, you know, eight years or so, but then those older fish are going to become pretty sluggish and you'll catch a 50 here and there once in a while, but the fishing's going to eventually peter out and you're going to need those, those fresh fish coming up behind them to, you know, you need those 42s to 44s that are going to create the action. Um, so you're always going to need that that next pot, that next generation coming up behind them, or it's going to be a short-lived party. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I know local lakes, I'm not going to use name, numbers, or destination, um, <laughs> have been, you know, just on fire. I mean, huge numbers of fish that are, I would say, Five years ago, I would have said that never would happen here. And, you know, would you guys adjust accordingly if all of a sudden you guys are noticing from anglers in your trap nets saying, we got a lot in here. Instead of putting in X amount of fish, we're going to do X divided by two. Well, I mean, I guess only if if the population was starting. That's why when the biologists, they go out every spring and they sample um these musky lakes they take scale samples from every single fish they catch and i mean most of a lot of the lakes i shouldn't say most a lot of the lakes were actually putting pit tag transponders in these fish so that as they catch a fish they can wand it and tell if they caught that fish before any previous years and if they did then they have what it weighed and what it measured that time and they know, okay, it's been two years two years ago we caught the same fish. It gained twelve pounds and three inches. That's a pretty good growth rate, you know, and they'll, they'll do that with every fish they catch in the lake. And at the end of the year, they'll have a report on how the fish are growing. So if the, if they caught a ton of fish in the trap nets and then they did scale samples and found out, okay, this fish is five years old, but it's only the size of a three-year-old. And this fish is eight years old. It's only the size of a four-year-old. And these two fish we caught two years in a row and they never grew. Okay. That population is getting too dense. You know, so then we might decrease stockings in a lake like that for a year or two, but then we bring it right back so that the small ones would be able to take the um, the place of the as they get older. And you want to just build once you get a good population, you have to keep stocking it, but you want just enough to live to replace the ones that are dying. So each fish that dies, you want one to live. Um, 
that's all hypothetical. You know, that's, that's, that's what we're trying to get to, mm-hmm. you know? So once we get to that point, once we get to the point where we have musky densities that are at that, that level, I think that'll be the next conversation we have, but that's kind of the, the general theory that's behind it. Um, it's ba- all based on growth patterns and um, catch rates and stuff like that. And it all depends on the forage base. You know, that's why they, they count every single perch that comes out of their nets. They count every single bluegill. They count every single golden shiner. You know, they, they build population estimates for the forage base as well as the fish that we're stocking so that they can, they kind of put, those are all little pieces of the puzzle, you know. So if they catch less less perch dramatically for three years and then the musky growth rate slows down, and that was their major food source in that that particular water body. They kind of put X and O's together and decide, okay, so that's that's why they're slowing down. The forage base is going down. We have to do something different. Maybe we de- decrease the the stocking rates. But that's all very hypothetical because um, the muskies are always going to be stocked based on trying to keep that survival rate up because there's always going to be the next generation that are dying off, and the muskies usually don't have that great of an impact on the forage base they're just not that voracious of a predator um usually you know if i feed minnows out there in the raceway and they eat two minnows a day they get a little bigger they eat two perch a day and they get a little bigger they eat two suckers a day and then they get huge and they eat two carp a day it's not like they're they ever reach a point where they're just going to eat 75 crappies in a day and wipe out a panfish population they're just they're not that kind of predator you know what i mean I mean, to me, that that answered a lot because I I used to read when I had a lot more time on my hands every single lake biologist report that the Fish Commission put out on on their website, and I never really thought too much beyond. I just wanted to see what was going on with the muskies. Never mm-hmm. really thought, why are they counting how many gizzard chat or whatever is in this <laughs> lake? And and it makes yeah. it makes sense now that. If if they can actually, you know, they they obviously do. You just said they can monitor, like just the catch rates and all this uh, forage base and and growth and all this. It makes sense that they're going to have. They don't. They will listen to anglers, but they're going to have a little bit more concrete evidence than some guy that says he's a musky fisherman. He's caught one fish in the last thirty years, or a guy that catches thirty fish in a day being lucky. Right. Um, but I mean, that's that's really. That's really interesting. So you're just really, the goal is, and it's you think it's probably not going to happen, is you want to get to a point to where it's just maintain mode, not let's fill the population mode. Like right now, it's always seemed to be running. There's no time to walk or sit down. Right. Very, very neat. Um, I mean, and if we ever got to that point, you know, the extra resources could then be put towards expanding into other lakes you know there's lakes that you know are being put on a last chance water because we've been stocking it for 20 years and they don't have a there's not a, enough muskies in that water to be a fishable population anglers don't have success there or anglers don't target them there you know so we're trying to remove those dogs off the list so we can free those fish up to stock at higher densities in the waters that they are working um so in the future you know if we get to a point where some of these lakes start getting to the what the biologist would assume, would call the max capacity what he wants it to be at where anglers going there and they're experiencing you know they wake up in the morning not hoping they 
have an experience with a fish, they're, they're pretty sure they're at least going to get a couple follows, you know, because there's a good population in there. You know, once, if, once we get to that point, um, we could shift resources to some of those other waters that were last chance waters or had musky populations, <coughs> had good musky populations in the past. It just kind of petered out for some reason and the stockings weren't working. We'd be able to go back to those waters, shift the resources around, maintain in a couple of waters and really stock at higher densities in some other waters and see if we could bring those populations back. You know, we could, there'll never be work not to be done. <laughs> yeah. Very, very neat. Now, Vance, Todd, do you have anything else? We're like hour and four minutes right now. I'm good. I, I did want to ask, it's, it's sort of a, uh, I guess a little bit of a different question to Jared. Do you, do you fish for muskies? Uh, I do a few times a year. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an average fisherman or average muskie fisherman. Uh, most of my time I is spent um, walleye fishing out on Lake Erie. My dad and I have yeah. a boat. We spend a lot of hours out there because I'm I'm busy in the spring too. So I miss a lot of the the good spring fishing that I used to do when I was a kid. Um, we slow down at the hatchery usually around the Fourth of July. We start getting most of our fish into the tanks where they're going to be for the year. And once it gets into just clean the fish tanks and feed the fish and keep them as healthy as we possibly can to get the most growth on them. Once I mean, we're in that mode, I can start, I can start getting some free time. And uh, yeah. generally that's when the lake, the walleye fishing's heating up in Lake Erie and I get out there. Um, yeah. But there's also a few days a year where the weather's a little nasty and uh, that always flips a little trigger in my head that if I have absolutely nothing going on that day and I really wanted to go fishing and the, if the water's a little bit choppy, that's a good day to go musky fishing. And, uh, yeah. Usually, I, usually I go chore the Presque Isle Bay, and I've had pretty good success. Hmm. Hey, I, I just wondered what your thinking was. You know, you're you're hand feeding these little guys for the whole year, and you're like, I can't go fish for them. They're my friends. <laughs> I was thinking the opposite. I, just, I, just <laughs> I was thinking the opposite. He could be like, "Why do I need to go musky fishing? I can dip my net and catch fifty of them every time." I was going to say, yeah, you, you handle more muskies than any of us. I know you, little guy. I know you. I remember you. Yeah. Remember me when I put that herbicide on your gills to save you, little Timmy. It's still fun, though. You know, I, I yeah. just love fishing. You know, we we stocked, um, you know, big 15-pound, four-year-old brown trout out in the Lake Erie tributaries this year after we took the eggs out of them in the fall. And uh, I just wanted the anglers to be able to enjoy them. You know, they're huge. And the day we stocked them, I was up there that evening catching them, and I had a blast. <laughs> I know exactly where you're at because I put you there two hours earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, did we talk uh, since the trap netting, or was that before? Oh, that was before. before. It was like February. Winter we talked last, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, just for a fun question, biggest one you saw in the nets this year? Oh, we had. We had three or four that were, uh, I should back up. We had about nine that were 50 or over. We had three or four that hit 52 and one that was 53. That's wow. awesome. What what lake did you put? I'm not going to ask you on air <laughs> where these fish were at. We can do that after the show. <laughs> but what lakes do you primarily trap net? That All those were out of Pima Tuning. Um, from Lionsville, we only trap Pima Tuning. 
Um, that might change in the future because um, the Union City hatchery generally historically has been involved in the, the muskie trapping process and muskie spawning of purebred muskies. Um, the Union City hatchery did not spawn any purebred muskies this year. They did spawn the tiger muskies. Um, so we took all of the eggs out of the pima tuning fish for this year and that's the plan for the foreseeable future. Um, we do want to keep in mind genetics and with Union City still being in the trap netting business, um, if things line up well, we'll we'll use some fish from Woodcock Creek or um, Edinburgh Lake or Canadota while Union City is in there. If they catch a few female muskies and it lines up with what we're doing, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely use those fish just to keep the genetics mixed up. Um, but for yeah. the most part, we're just going to be using pima tuning for a while. And in, like you said on the on the first podcast you were on, you guys keep track genetically, so you are not just making this family tree straight. You, right. Okay. I wanted to bring yep. that up because there was comments on one thread when that went horribly south about the voluntary <laughs> muskie permit about this guy saying that um I'm I'm not gonna quote this correctly, but there you guys are just doing nothing but inbreeding fish. And I wanted to at least Bring that yeah, it, we've talked about that quite a. We got into genetics quite a bit more than I yeah. meant to on that first podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same answer. It's fish genetics is quite a bit different than people understand because most people have a pretty good understanding of animal genetics. Um, fish genetics are in every lake. Your bluegill population is doing exactly what we're doing. You know, the, the bluegills in that particular water body are breeding with each other year after year after year, and they're becoming more and more genetically perfectly adapted for the water body that they're in. So the muskies and pomer tuning are eventually, you know, if they were left to on their own, they're still the same fish that we're spawning, still spawning with the exact same males that we're spawning with. They'd be doing the exact same thing in nature as the, what we're doing, and they become more and more genetically perfectly adapted to the water body they're in. So since we're, but we're not stocking just one single water body. So we try to be careful that we don't take all the eggs out of three or four females and stock the whole entire state with them, because that would not allow for enough adaptation to different types of water bodies. So we'll take eggs from 25 different females when we don't even need that many and hatch them off. Then we mix the fry up. And so we have a nice, the, the muskies that get stocked all over the state are a nice mixture of genetics from multiple females. And then we use several males per female so that the genetic combinations, even within one female's eggs are enormous. You know, there's a lot of different mixture in there. I'm really glad you went in that depth of detail because that that's stuff that, you know, some people just starting to listen, you know, we get new subscribers, you know, daily that, you know, now might want to go back and, and re-listen, you know, not re-listen, listen to the show or some stuff that people forgot. But I, I think that's a really important point and I'm glad you it is. that in. And, and that's a good thing to remind people about it. Like it, when people start talking about genetics and fish, it's, just understand it's a little bit different. You know, it's very complicated. And just think about the perch population in your local lake. You know, there's no there's no perch coming in from the lake 10 miles down the road to bring new genetics yeah. into that water body. They're, they're yeah. the exact same fish. They're the exact same brothers and sisters and cousins. Um, 
Yeah. That's just how that's yeah. how it's supposed to work. That's how they become adapted to that particular water body. Okay. One other thing, real quick. How how do you guys do the tigers? How do you make the tigers? Is it a female muskie, male northern, male, or, or does it both work both ways? Yeah, it works both ways. So okay. the northern pike obviously spawn first. So as the northern pike spawn finishes up, the male muskies will be be ready first before the female muskies are ready because the males are always ready. Um. That was supposed to be funny. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to just interrupt with laugh. laugh. <laughs> so anyhow, so we call that the natural cross. The natural cross is the female northern pike and the male muskie. Because that's okay. what can happen in nature. Sometimes you'll have a, a northern pike that holds on a little longer and is coming real late into the season. And she comes into spawn and a male muskie just happens to be in the area. And he's like, hey, why not? Mm-hmm. So that's how... Tigers can be made in nature, so we call that the natural cross. So we do take a majority of our tiger muskie eggs with the female northern and the male muskies. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, eye, the egg viability from the female northern male muskie cross isn't quite as good for some reason, um, but we, can, we have a large source of northern pike up at the Eaton Reservoir that's close to the Union City Hatchery. That's why they handle the um, tiger muskie spawning. So we can get a large amount of eggs that kind of overcomes the, the poor egg viability. I'd say poor. It's like 70% instead of 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then once that finishes up and there's no more female northerns to be had, they'll hold on to some male northerns until the female muskies get ready. And then they'll finish taking the, mus- the tiger muskie egg commitment with the female muskies using the male northern pike. Um, and those eggs, the egg, egg viability is very good. Um, the only downside to that cross is the growth of the small fish. So, you know, the, the female northern, yeah, the female yeah, northern yeah. cross, tiger muskies have hatched and are up to like three inches by the time we're even taking the eggs for the female muskie spawn. Uh, Um, the question we want to answer now and we're going to be working on this over the next few years we just i don't know why we never looked into it before but we kind of want to know um if there's a difference down the road you know so i think we're going to have some meetings with fisheries managers and biologists and see if maybe they don't care but if they if they think it's as interesting as we do i'd like to get with them and um you know my boss rob brown i know he's on board with it I think he would like to have some meetings with them and just see if they're interested. And if they have a, a couple tiger musky waters that are historically been very successful, let's take one of them and put all for a period of five or six years, put the female Northern cross in there and take the female musky cross and put in the other one <coughs> and just see if there's a, a size difference yeah. or a, you know, I guess everybody kind of assumes the female northern cross is going to be more of an aggressive fish, but they might not get as big. And the female musky cross is going to maybe get a little bigger, but they're not going to be as aggressive. Um, okay. It'd be neat to find out if that's true or not. You're yeah. trying to make yeah. a super tiger musky. <laughs> exactly. I would love that. And we don't know. And then once we answer that, we got to find out what the anglers want. Do you want the ones that are bigger or do you want the ones that are easier to catch? <laughs> I want the ones that... When I'm standing in my boat, the head's on one side and the tail's on the other. Yeah. 
I, I guess to kind of wrap up Tigers yeah. real quick, and we can, and unless you guys got something else, um, how often? I mean, there was a year or two that a lot of my friends were catching tigers. Is there? And, and this might sound silly now that you guys really segregated everything. Were there mix-ups ever with stalking that you accidentally stalked tigers where you should have been putting peers or vice versa? Or did this just happen I mean, naturally? There was like a year where like six of them got sent to me. And they're like, what do you think? Remember that, Todd? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I obviously I can't say for 100% certainty, but I'm as close to as 100% certain as I can be that there wasn't a mix-up. Um, just the way that... that the tanks are seg- segregated in the hatch house and they're, you know, and the union city hatchery was the only hatchery that ever had, I guess that's not true. Um, they were raised, both species were raised at union city hatchery, the Tynest hatchery and the Pleasant Mountain hatchery at one point. So, but it's not, it wasn't one of those things where once in a while you forget what's in that tank or something. It wasn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't, it's not set up that way. It's, it's very crystal clear. Um, that would really take a brain fart for that to have happened. Um, were they young fish? Todd, what do you think? They were probably upper twenties, low thirties, and they were all cookie cutters that year. Mm-hmm. And they weren't those. And, and some of those pictures I was saying were not those ones that, People call tigers just because they're barred up little ones. I mean, they, I always tell people when you really see a tiger, you know it's a tiger. Their right. stripes go across their face and back, and yeah. Oh wow! And, and this no, wasn't yeah. just yes, one body of water; it was like two or three bodies of water. The and same were those summer. bodies of water were northerns and muskies habitat. Uh, one was not. Hmm. So That's interesting. Yeah. Anyways, I was just curious if you'd be like, yeah, you know, we kind of did. Yeah, if it happens again, send me a picture. I'd be, I'd like to dig into that a little further. But, you know, I see, I see a lot of people calling tiger muskies. They're on that, when those fish are in the, that 28, you know, between 20 and 30 inches, they, a lot of times they have very distinct bars. And there's, yeah. And um, I'm pretty sure, you know, way back in the past, there was some, you know, Great Lakes spotted string muskies that were stocked into Lake Palma tuning. So mm-hmm. I think that accounts for a lot of the different patterning that we see. You know, some of the some of the fish that we see coming out of Palma tuning are spotted like Great Lakes fish, and other ones are very darkly barred, like an Ohio, Ohio River string fish. So it, it's kind of an interesting thing going on the patterns and looking at that stuff. But I, I know it's not uncommon for young fish to have very dark bars and look like taggers. Um, but like you said, if you're seeing the bars go across the face and stuff, it sure sounds like a like a tiger. Um, and I've seen a lot of young tigers coming out of Kerwinsville and um, Keystone Power Dam the last couple of years, and um, they definitely you can definitely tell it's a tiger when you look at it. Yeah, so. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then Pennsylvania right now is really isolating where they're going to the tiger, right? Hmm. That's pretty interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Any any other questions, you guys, before we wrap this up? I'm good. I'm good. All right. Perfect. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, big thanks to Fatty Z Musky Products, uh, Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, mcfishingguides.com, St. Croix Rods, Ranger Boats, Vicks Marine Sports Center, Baker Baits, uh, the Chautauqua Lake Showdown, June 29th. Check it out. Chapter 69. 
hop on their website, all the information going on right there. And lastly, Muskies Inc. Join your local chapter and be part of the greater, bigger voice and help your local fisheries. Jared, thank you again for coming on. This was great. Um, we'll have you on. <laughs> Thanks again. for having me. I, I really enjoy it. Anytime. Yes. All right. Thanks for listening. Good luck fishing.